Well, thank you, Brother Chairman, and my dear brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, and my dear young people. Well, it's a splendid day here in Virginia. The sun is shining, the air is cool, the grass is green, the trees flourish. It looks remarkably like New Zealand, really, and, um, and so I feel very comfortable here on this, uh, on this wonderful day. And it's a joy and a delight, isn't it, to have the opportunity to gather together around the things of the truth at any time. You know, we often say in our prayers, don't we, how thankful we are to the Father that we can meet together and worship without let or hindrance. And we live in an, in an age and in a land that allows us to do this. And of course we ought never to underestimate the privilege, therefore, that we have. And that given that it is a privilege from the Father that when we do have opportunity to gather, that we ought to take the utmost advantage of these things. Now, of course, those sitting at the tables on the outside edges, you'll know, know, have, of course, the greatest benefit, of course, really, because they are able to have their study notes out and their pieces of paper out to write more notes than anybody else. So I encourage you to speak to those who have sat at the side tables after each study to look at the extent of their notes because they will be more profound and more lengthy than your own. And uh, no doubt you might be able to uh, rotate the privilege of sitting at the said tables. Our chairman mentioned in his opening prayer a verse that really is very important concerning what we hope to cover, God willing, in these studies over the course of this weekend. He referred to a passage in the book of Timothy which says that thou mightest know how thou ought to behave thyself in the ecclesia of God. And that's very much what these studies are going to be about over the course of this weekend. How to behave ourselves in the ecclesia of God. And we mean behave, of course, not in the sense of behaving as opposed to ill works or evil works, but the whole manner of conduct that we ought to show as brothers and sisters in ecclesial life. So let me just by way of introduction to start with just set out one or two objectives for these studies as to what it is that we're trying to achieve. And I think the first thing is this, that we're trying to find the divine standard in the matter of how brothers and sisters ought to conduct themselves in ecclesial life. Why are we trying to find the divine standard? Because, brothers and sisters, what happens in the world may be utterly different to what the Father wants and what the Father says. One of the things that frightens me the most is that we live our lives in an age and in a culture where we accept that whatever, is, whatever we live in is the norm. Do you use that word over here as well? That whatever we have around us is the norm. And in fact there's only one norm that's of any value or any importance and that's the divine norm, whatever that might be. And the great thing about divine principles is that they are true and eternal and transferable in whatever age or whatever time or whatever circumstance that we might live in. And I really hope, brothers and sisters, that by the time this weekend is finished that you'll utterly agree with that, that the principles that we will look at this weekend together are eternal things. It's got nothing to do with the fact that we live in America or New Zealand or Timbuktu but everything to do with the fact that this is what the Father wants, that this is what the Father desires, that this is what the Father has said that we ought to do, that this is the divine standard that we're striving to achieve. So that's the first thing. We're trying to find the divine standard in these things. And I think the second thing is just to let everyone know that these are not studies this weekend on marriage. They've got nothing to do with the marriage relationship. They're to do with the relationship of men and women, of brothers and sisters, as they cooperate together in ecclesial life. It may be that some of these things are true for marriages as well. But that's not the focus of these studies. These studies are about the role of the brother and the sister and their cooperation together that the body of Christ might be knit together and that it might grow towards its head. And I think the last thing that I wanted to say before we get underway and with our first study is this, that, you know, whenever you're dealing with things concerning men and women, that, well, it's a highly delicate thing, isn't it? It's, it's one of the fortunate things that I have as a speaker is that whatever I say over the next two days, I can always fly out on Monday, you see. 
and whatever the consequences I leave behind, I'll be safely back in New Zealand some 27 hours later. So it's a delicate thing. And so I just wanted to say this before we start, and that's this. You know, in each of these studies, we're only dealing with part of a story. It's not till you get all five sessions that you will have the completion of the story. So if in the course of our studies today you think, oh, he hasn't mentioned this, you know, or he didn't say that, or he hasn't referred to that passage, wait your patience. Reserve your judgment until the end. Because I can't say everything in the first session. But in the totality of the story, I think you'll find that there's a wonderful balance. And I hope we all go away saying, yes, that is what the Father has said. And that's the divine standard that we should strive for together. But you'll need to grant me the patience of listening to all five studies before you come to that decision. So having said all of that then by way of introduction and cleared the decks as it were, now we can get into our first session this afternoon or this morning. And um, what we're going to look at in the studies today, both, both this morning and this evening, is that we're going to come across three key ideas that I think are principles that become the very foundation stones of the way in which brothers and sisters behave in the ecclesia of God. And the wonderful thing about these three principles is that they are all embedded in the book of Genesis, chapters 1 to 3. Why are, we not, why are we surprised at that? Well, of course, we ought not to be surprised because we've always said, haven't we, that Genesis is the seedbed of the Bible, that in these first few chapters are all the foundation doctrines that later will become the golden threads of the Bible's story. Well, well, this is the same thing again. The role of men and women and how they will live together and cooperate together in their worship before the Father and in their spiritual growth, that's all found in Genesis as well. And there are three key principles that I think interplay with each other and mesh together and that the wonderful thing about these three things is that they are in harmony. Now I ask you to remember that word, they're in harmony. These three things are not contradictory, they are harmonious the one with the other. So the first is the principle of equality. And God willing, we're going to look at that in our first study this morning. The second principle is the principle of hierarchy. And we're going to, found that that, we're going to find that that principle follows hard on the heels of equality in the same chapters of Genesis. And the third principle that God willing will look at this evening is the principle of diversity that God has deliberately made the man and the woman different and blessed them with such wonderful blessings that we ought to appreciate that diversity and to understand that it is indeed a blessing from Almighty God himself. So there's our three studies for today. Equality, hierarchy and diversity. And they're all based on Genesis 1 to 3. Now let's come and have a look at the first one then. So Genesis chapter 1. Let's start off the record and see what it is that we can discover concerning this first great principle that was established in the book of Genesis. Now in Genesis chapter 1 we're told this in the 26th verse. It says, And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them... Oh, now you see that word, them. So already the word is in the plural. Let them. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image and the image of God created he him male and female created he them and God blessed them and God said unto them be fruitful and multiply. So you see what we're being told here in Genesis chapter 1 and verses 26 to 28 is that both the male and the female, verse 27, are in the image and likeness of God. They're fashioned after a divine order of things as it were. And they're both blessed by God, says verse 28. 
and they're both given responsibility to subdue the rest of creation and to have dominion over it. So from the very beginning of time, says Genesis chapter 1, there was equality between the man and the woman, between the male and the female. God said that this was so. He blessed them both. And although the circumstance of Genesis 1 occurs before the fall, the fact of the matter is that Genesis 1 illustrates to us the purpose that God had from the very beginning. And so in this first record of the creation of these two, they've got everything in common, haven't they? Right from the very start, they've got everything in common. Now, you'll know that in verse 26 it says that that they were made in the image and likeness of God. And the word image, of course, we believe has reference to bodily form, whereas the word likeness has reference to our mental abilities. So what we're being told in Genesis 1 is that when the male and the female of the species were formed, that they both had a spirit of the image of God and a sense of the likeness of God upon them both. Now, if the likeness of God has to do with mental capacity then what Genesis 1 is telling us is that both the man and the woman have equality of mental capacity to receive and to absorb divine principles. Both the male and the female have been blessed with a mind that can understand divine ideals. Now that's important, by the way, because you know in some quarters of the brotherhood you almost get the notion that, well, sisters really... They don't know anything about the Bible. In fact, they ought not because, well, it's too difficult for them. Not so, says Genesis chapter 1. They're both both blessed with an ability to understand divine things and that was so from the very beginning of time. So now Genesis chapter 2. And Genesis 2 says in the 18th verse, and you'll remember this phrase, it says, And Yahweh Elohim said, It is not good that the man should be alone, I will make an help meet for him. And then verse 22 says that therefore, from the rib which Yahweh Elohim had taken from the man, he made a woman and he brought her unto the man. And the man said, verse 24, therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. So, so the one was made to be an help meet, says verse 18. Now the word help meet here in the Hebrew is interesting. The, in fact, my margin says one as before him. And that's pretty, pretty much correct. Because the Hebrew, etzer kenigdo, means literally one as his front. And Rodhams translates that phrase, a helper as his counterpart. Or the speaker's Bible commentary says, a helper matching him. So what we're being told in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18 is that when the woman was formed, she was formed very deliberately by God that she might be the counterpart of Adam. She was in every sense his equal in certain respects. She was made that she might stand alongside him, that she might work with him, that she might be an equal in fulfilling the divine purpose upon the face of the earth. They were mirror images of each other. I like that idea, by the way. They were mirror images of each other. They reflected the opposite sides of one story. So that's the way God planned it. You see, they they had equality of responsibility to manifest the divine principles in their work now over the rest of the creation. Well, you notice this in Genesis 2, verse 16, that here is the record of the law being given. Now, look what it says. In Genesis 2, verse 16, it says, And Yahweh Elohim commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. So the man received the divine commandment. Did the woman have that? 
Yes, chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. So here you see we're being told that equality of status in their moral sentiment now brings equality of responsibility to live by divine law. So the man has the law in chapter 2 verses 16 and 17 and the woman has the law in chapter 3 verses 2 and 3 and it's the same law and they have equal responsibility to render obedience to that law. You know why? Because they had equal ability to understand the law. Equal ability to understand the principles that God was setting forth. There was equality. And what about chapter 3 in the matter of the fall? Was there equality in the fall? Yes, says chapter 3, because verses 6 and 7 say this. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, pleasant to the eyes and the tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her and he did eat and the eyes of them both were opened and they knew that they were naked. You see, there was equality here in the experience of sinning before God, wasn't there? They both fell. Or they might have fallen for different reasons, and we'll we'll come to that later on in the story, but the fact is that they both fell. There was an equality of experience here as they fell short of the mark that God had set them. And in this particular chapter, we're going to be told in Genesis that the law of sin and death would come as a result. Did it come upon the man and the woman? Yes. So there was equality of condemnation from the father, wasn't there, in this particular chapter. Equality of experience in sinning, but also equality of condemnation for the same law was passed upon them both. And then chapter 3 And verse 21 says, And not only that, but there was absolute equality of treatment in the gracious divine provision of a covering for sin. Because chapter 3 and verse 21 says, And unto Adam also, and to his wife, did Yahweh Elohim make coats of skins, and clothed them both. And God provided a way of salvation to both the man and to the woman, to the male and to the female, and there was equality in the treatment that they received from the Father here in the provision of a covering for sin. So there's no doubt about it, is there, brothers and sisters, that when we read Genesis 1 to 3, that there is a distinct principle here that's being enunciated from the very beginning, is that in certain respects... There was an equality that the man and the woman enjoyed before the Father. Now, when we come from Genesis into the rest of the Bible record, we will find that that principle of equality now is established as a foundation idea that will be built upon in the rest of the Bible record. Now, come and have a look at some of the matters of the law by way of illustration. In Numbers chapter 5, we have the law concerning both uncleanness and trespass. Matters of uncleanness and matters of trespass. And and you notice what it says in Numbers chapter 5 and verse 1. And Yahweh spake unto Moses, saying... Command the children of Israel that they put out of the camp every leper, every one that hath an issue, and whosoever is defiled by the dead, both male and female, shall ye put out, without the camp shall ye put them 
that they defile not their camps. Now, of course, these states of chapter 5 and verse 1 are symbols, aren't they? Of course, they were real things. I mean, there were actually lepers and those who had an issue of blood and those that were defiled by the dead. But the very, the very circumstances of chapter 5 and verse 2 is that those things were teaching matters concerning sin, weren't they? They were symbols of the state of sin that pertains to us. And so no difference is put, therefore, in verse 3 between the male and the female in their equal responsibility before God. The fact that they can equally be affected by these principles so they are put without discrimination out of the camp that they might learn the identical principles. And when we come to verse 5, in the matter of the law of trespass offerings, you notice what it says. Yahweh spake unto Moses saying, Speak unto the children of Israel when a man or a woman shall commit any sin that men commit to do a trespass against Yahweh and that person be guilty, then they shall confess their sin which they have done. So you see, what Numbers tells us is that a man and a woman had equal responsibility before God in the matter of making restitution for sin. Equal responsibility. And so it should be. Because if they had equal ability to know God's law and equal ability to render obedience to God's law, then if either of them fall, they must have equal responsibility to make restitution for that fall. The very equality of restitution of Numbers 5 and verse 6 can only be based upon equality of ability to begin with. Deuteronomy chapter 17 is the law of Moses and on the subject of apostasy or idolatry in the nation. And Deuteronomy 17 verse 2 says that this is how idolatry was to be dealt with in the midst of Israel. Deuteronomy 17 and verse 2. If there be found among you within any of the gates which Yahweh thy God giveth thee, man or woman that hath wrought wickedness in the sight of Yahweh thy God in transgressing his covenant, and hath gone and served other gods and worshipped them, either the sun or moon or any of the host of heaven which I have not commanded, and if it be told thee, and thou hast heard of it, and inquired diligently, and behold it be true, and the thing certain that such abomination is wrought in Israel, then thou shalt bring forth that man or that woman which have committed that, that wicked thing unto thy gates, even that man or that woman, and thou shalt stone them with stones till they die. So here you see, in the book of Deuteronomy, there is equal accountability before God in practicing the sin of idolatry. There's no difference in the treatment meted out, is there, to the man or the woman, and neither there should be. So when both practice that sin which takes people away from the Father and from the worship of God, they are held equally responsible before him. Nehemiah chapter 8 now, do you remember in the, book of, in the book of Nehemiah, we're told of that marvellous day when Ezra, the old man Ezra, stood up to read from the book of the law. We believe it was probably a year of release. And we're told in Deuteronomy 31 that in the year of release they were to gather all the people together and to read from the scroll of the law. And Nehemiah chapter 8 appears to be a celebration of that edict of Deuteronomy 31. And we're told in the first verse of Nehemiah 8, and all the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street that was before the water gate. And they spake unto Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which Yahweh had commanded to Israel. And Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation, both of men and women, and all that could hear with understanding upon the first day of the seventh month. And he read therein before the street that was before the water gate from the morning until midday before the men and the women and those that could understand. So you see what Nehemiah tells us 
is that both the male and the female had equal privilege before God in receiving the instruction of the word and equal responsibility to observe its principles. And they could both understand. Because it says that those that were there, verse 2, is both men and women and all that could hear with understanding. There's no difference put between the two, is there, in this particular matter of the reading of the law and understanding its principles. Exodus 35. Now, this is a really, a, a, a really good illustration of this principle of equality. And in Exodus 35, we're told of the bringing of the gifts for the service of the tabernacle. And this is what it says. And just look at why equality should be shown here, and rightly so. Exodus 35 says, and I'm going to read from the 20th verse. In fact, I'm going to read right through to verse 29. And um, I'm going to try and put the emphasis on the text so that you see the point of equality. So Exodus 35 and starting at verse 20. And all the congregation of the children of Israel departed from the presence of Moses and they came, everyone whose heart stirred him up and everyone whom his spirit made willing and they brought Yahweh's offering to the work of the tabernacle of the congregation and for all his servants, service, and for the holy garments, and they came, both men and women, as many as were willing-hearted, and bought bracelets and earrings and rings and tablets, all jewels of gold. And every man that offered, offered an offering of gold unto Yahweh. And every man with whom was found blue and purple and scarlet and fine linen and goat's hair and red skins of rams and badger skins brought them. Every one that did offer an offering of silver and brass brought Yahweh's offering. And every man with whom was found shittim wood for any work of the service brought it. And all the women that were wise-hearted did spin with their hands and brought that which they had spun, both of blue and of purple and of scarlet, of fine linen. And all the women whose hearts stirred them up in wisdom spun goat's hair. And the rulers brought onyx stones and stones to be set for the ephod and for the breastplate and spice and oil for the light and for the anointing oil and for the sweet incense. And the children of Israel brought a willing offering unto Yahweh, every man and every woman whose heart made them willing to bring for all manner of work which Yahweh had commanded to be made by the hand of Moses. Was there equality of right to bring an offering before the Father with willing hearts? Oh yes, says Exodus 35, of course there was. And of course there should be. Leviticus chapter 7 is one of the chapters concerning the peace offering. Now, you'll probably know that one of the great features of the offerings is that every offering had a, a particular aspect that was the most notable aspect of it. So, for example, the, the burnt offering, the focus was on the consumption of the flesh and the ascension of the smoke. The sin offering was all to do with the disposal of the blood. What was the special feature of the peace offering? And the answer is that the peace offering was the only offering where the offerer could take part of the, of the meat of the offering and consume it as a meal. And of course the principle therefore of the peace offering was that here was a meal that was eaten partly by God, as it were, and partly by the offerer. So it stood for the principle of fellowship with God, didn't it? That was the great feature of the peace offering, the ability to eat part of the offering. Now, you see what it says in Leviticus 7 concerning this offering, verse 30. His own hands shall bring the offerings of Yahweh made by fire. So in the law concerning the peace offering, the stress was on the fact that the hands of the offerer had to bring it. And of course, you know what they did is they would always place their hands on the head of the animal, wouldn't they, to show the principle of association. Now, do you know what's interesting about that offering? 
You don't need to turn this up, but Leviticus 3 in verses 1 to 6 tells us that one of the unique features of the peace offering was that it was one of only two cases in the entire law of Moses where a female lamb could be offered. That either a male or a female of the flock could be offered for a peace offering. Why is that significant, brothers and sisters? Because the animal represented the individual who offered the offering. And the teaching of the law here was that in the matter of ascending into the heights of fellowship with God, that either a man or a woman can make this offering. And so that they might feel identified, it could be either a male or a female of the flock and they would lay their hands upon it and they would eat that meal of fellowship with the Father. And the law of Moses told Israel that in the, in the matter of entering into fellowship with God, there is equality between a man and a woman. They may both offer alike and eat the fellowship meal. And isn't that what David did? Because you remember the first of Chronicles 16 on that famous occasion when the ark of God was brought to Jerusalem and the matters of fellowship, of, of, um, of worship rather, were to be established by David in Israel. We're told that on the day that he brought the ark to, to Jerusalem, well it says in the first of Chronicles 16 in verse 2, and when David had made an end of offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of Yahweh. And he dealt to every one of Israel, both man and woman, to every one a loaf of bread and a good piece of flesh and a flagon of wine. So on that day, when the, when the whole nation celebrated the bringing of the ark to Jerusalem, both the man and the woman were given the fellowship meal, as it were, by David on this occasion. And there was equal opportunity before God to participate in acts of worship and to enter into the joy of fellowship before the Father on that special day. Each man and each woman alike received those, those gifts from the king. Oh yes, there was equality, brothers and sisters, in the teaching of the law. Now, Numbers chapter 6. Here's our last one from the law of Moses. Now, come and have a look at Numbers chapter 6. And uh, I want to um, take you to the... Um, well, probably firstly to, to verse 5. Now, look, some of you may know this, but just in case you don't, I'm going to tell you anyway. So... Of course, the Nazarite vow, which is number six, the Nazarite vow was a unique vow in this respect that it has strange associations with the high priest in Israel. The Nazarite vow is almost a deliberate parallel of the high priest. Now, let me just show you that by way of illustration. You notice that in the fifth verse it says... All the days of the vow of his separation, there shall no razor come upon his head. So now hold your hand in Numbers 6 and come back to Leviticus chapter 21. Because in Leviticus 21 we're told what was to happen to the priests, including the high priest. So, so there was... There was no razor to come upon the head of the Nazarite, upon his hair says Numbers 6 verse 5 but you know that that was the very law concerning the high priest because Leviticus 21 says verse, verse 1 speak unto the priests the son of Aaron verse 5 they shall not make baldness upon their head neither shall they shave off the corner of their beard or make any cuttings in their flesh so no razor was to come upon the head of the Nazarite, says Numbers 6 and verse 5, and the priest was not to shave his head or his beard, says Leviticus 21, verse 5. So that which the Nazarite was bound to observe was, was identical to the spirit of the high priest. Now come back to Numbers 6 then, and have a look now at, um, at the end of verse 5. It says in Numbers 6 and verse 5 that he shall be holy and shall let the locks of the hair of his head grow. 
Now those locks that grew were therefore a testimony to the holiness of the Nazarite. In fact, you see what it says at the end of verse 7. It says, the consecration of God is upon his head. So when a Nazarite walked past, brothers and sisters, and one saw the locks that were growing, it was a symbol that this person was holy to God and he wore that as a crown upon his head. Oh, can you see the connection now? A crown of consecration upon his head which proclaimed his holiness. Now, now, isn't that the law of the high priest? Because if you come back to Leviticus 8, now don't lose numbers, if you come back to Leviticus chapter 8, what was it that the high priest wore upon his head? And the answer is, well, not locks of hair, but there was something very similar because Leviticus 8 and verse 9 said that what the high priest was to do was this. Verse 9... He put the mitre upon his head, also upon the mitre, even upon his forefront, did he put the golden plate, the holy crown. So he wore on his head a holy crown. And what was written on the holy plate? Holiness to the Lord. Written across the forehead, the mind of the priest, to say that my thinking is dedicated to the thinking of the Father. And the Nazarite wore a crown of locks upon his head. And you see what number 6 said, verse 5, He shall be holy and let the locks of the hair of his head grow. So the Nazarite wore a crown of holiness on his head to show exactly the same principle as the high priest, that he was holy to God in his thinking and in his actions. So the Nazarite was like the high priest. What about this one? Come back to number 6 and uh, verses 6 and 7. All the days that he separateth himself unto Yahweh, he shall come at no dead body. By the way, does anyone know what the word body is in verse 6? Yes, it's Nephesh, a dead soul. Oh, isn't that interesting? A dead soul. So those who believe in the immortality of the soul ought to take note of Numbers 6, verse 6, because, well, here's a dead soul, says the Bible. And the, the Nazarite was not allowed to come near that dead soul. Verse 7, he shall not make himself unclean for his father or his mother or his brother or his sister when they die. So the Nazarite was expressly prohibited from contact with a dead body, even if it was his close family. Not allowed, said the law, not allowed to come near them. But wasn't that the law concerning the high priest? Because if you come back to Leviticus chapter 21, well, this is what it says. In Leviticus 21 and Verses 10 and 11. It says, And he that is high priest among his brethren, upon whose head the anointing oil was poured, and that is consecrated to put on the garments, shall not uncover his head nor rend his clothes, neither shall he go into any dead body, nor defile himself for his father, or for his mother. Even if it was a close relative, the high priest was not allowed to come near that dead body, said the law. He's the priest. Verse 12 says, he's not allowed to go out of the sanctuary. The crown of the anointing oil of his God is upon him. So the very law that expressly forbade the high priest to come near a body is the same injunction now that is put upon the Nazarite of Numbers 6 and verses 6 and 7 that they were to be separate from any defiling influence. Now here's one last one. Come back to Numbers 6 and verse 3. He shall separate himself from wine and strong drink Verse 4, all the days of his separation shall he eat nothing that is made of the vine tree. So when the Nazarite performed their vow of dedication, they were to abstain from the drinking of wine and strong drink. But wasn't that a prohibition upon the priests? Because if you come back to Leviticus chapter 10, we're told this, 
In Leviticus 10, we're told in the very, on the very day, by the way, that the priests of Aaron were first consecrated, including Aaron in his high priesthood. We're told this, Leviticus 10 and verse 8. And Yahweh spake unto Aaron, saying, Do not drink wine or strong drink, thou nor thy sons with thee, when thou goest into the tabernacle of the congregation. When the priests served, said the law, they were to abstain from wine. When the Nazarite made his vow, he was to abstain from wine. Oh, now this is interesting because, you see, what we're being told here is that the law is deliberately paralleling now the work of the high priest and the, the service of a Nazarite. So which one of the two, do you think, brothers and sisters, was higher? And the answer is the Nazarite. Why was the Nazarite's vow of consecration, in its sense, loftier than the high priest? And the answer is because, now come back to number six, you see. The answer is because the high priest was high priest by virtue of his descent. He had to perform these things, whether he wished to or not. He was compelled to do so by virtue of his office. But the one great feature of the Nazarite vow, brothers and sisters, is that it was entirely voluntary, wasn't it? So that dedication which they showed was on the principle of the fact that they voluntarily yielded to submit to the Father in this thing. It was a free will offering that made it a higher offering than even that of the high priest. Did it not? Because of the spirit with which it was offered. And now look at Numbers 6 verse 1. It was a long introduction, brothers and sisters, but... Now we've got to the point, you see, because Numbers 6 verse 1 says, And Yahweh spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When either man or woman shall separate themselves to vow a vow of a Nazarite, so you see, what the law said is that a man and a woman had equal honour before God in rising to the greatest level that the law could give of individual holiness and dedication to the Father. There is nothing higher, brothers and sisters, in the law than the Nazarite vow. And at that moment, the law expressly said that either a man or a woman was able to make that vow before the Father think so. So what the law is teaching, and it's entirely based upon that principle of Genesis 1 to 3, is, well, that in our relationship to the Father, all men and women share equality, equal opportunity to absorb divine principles, equal opportunity to render obedience, equal opportunity to engage in worship, equal ability to bring an offering Equal opportunity to make pledges and vows of dedication. Equal privilege to aspire to the joy of fellowship. There is equality. That's the teaching of the book. And it was so from the very beginning, says Genesis chapter 1. So when we come to the New Testament record, therefore, is... The teaching of the New Testament consistent with this principle of equality? And the answer is, well, yes, of course it is. If you come to the story of the Acts of the Apostles, and let's just notice a couple of references in the advance of the truth in those early glorious years. Acts chapter 5, and uh, this is what it says concerning the work of the Apostles in the 12th verse. So Acts 5 and verse 12 says... And by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. And of the rest durst no man join himself to them, but the people magnified them, and believers were the more added to the Lord, multitudes, both of men 
and women. And when the truth goes forth in the era of the apostles, brothers and sisters, and will begin its great march across the world, it will, without discrimination, bring in both the male and the female, who equally will respond to the message of truth, that Christ is Messiah, that the kingdom will be established through him, and that in his name is remission of sins and salvation before the Father. And the man and the woman would both believe that message and would both respond. Acts chapter 8 and verse 12. Well, here's a very famous passage that we all know concerning, well, Acts 8 verse 12. But when they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptised both men and women says the record in Acts and so it should be brothers and sisters because they have equal capacity and always have had to appreciate divine principles now in Galatians chapter 3 there's a very interesting passage that we use often in our lectures concerning the promises, promises to the fathers. And this is what Paul says in Galatians 3, and reading from verse 27. He says, For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, of course, there's a question then about Galatians 3 and verse 28. You see, when Paul said there is neither Jew nor Greek, there clearly was both Jew and Greek at the time that Paul wrote. When Paul said there is neither bond nor free, there were both of those classes in the ecclesias of that day. When Paul said there's neither male nor female, there clearly were. So what does he mean exactly when in Galatians 3 verse 28 he says there is no Jew and Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. And I think that the answer lies in the context of the argument of Galatians chapter 3. And his argument is very simple. You just need to colour in one key word. It's the word all in verse 22 and the word all in verse 26. And here's the thrust of the argument. You see, what Galatians is simply saying is this. In verse 22, it is the teaching of the apostle that all have been concluded under sin. That that is a universal principle of mankind. That everyone's caught. Everyone's condemned. Not one single person escapes the condemnation or the conclusion of sin that verse 22 has spoken of. And there's only one solution. And the solution is verse 26, ye are all the children of God by faith in Jesus Christ. So whilst the world is caught under sin, verse 22, the means of deliverance for all is the basis of faith outlined in the 26th verse. So these are God's universal principles for dealing with the entire human race. And because they're God's universal principles, they apply equally to the male and to the female. All distinctions of race and class and sex are dissolved in the universal truth of these principles. Is there male or female distinguished in the matter of sin? No, there isn't. Is there any difference between male and female in the hope of salvation by faith? And the answer is no, there isn't. And so therefore, on the very basis of what Paul is arguing in this chapter, there is no difference in this particular thing. In fact, you see what it says. Interesting, verse 28, he says, There's neither Jew nor Greek, neither bond nor free, neither male nor female. Now where do you think, brothers and sisters, that the Apostle might have drawn that phrase from? Well, of course, that phrase is only found three times in the New Testament record, the male and the female. You want to know where the other two occasions are? Here's one of them in Galatians 3, 
When are the other two places where that phrase is found? Anybody know? Well, Matthew chapter 19, when Jesus said to the Pharisees, Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? So Matthew 19 and verse 4 and Mark chapter 10 verse 6. And Mark, by the way, is simply the parallel record of the same story. Now when Jesus said in Matthew 19, Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? Where was the Lord quoting from? And the answer is, I think he was quoting from the very same place that the Apostle Paul is alluding to in Galatians 3, verse 28. He's taking us all the way back to where? To Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. And God made man in the image of God, created he them, male and female, created he them. And I think that Paul, in this chapter, is deliberately taking us back to the story of the creation when God made male and female and celebrated the equality that they had from the very beginning of time. Thus it is so. And as we come into the New Testament record, brothers and sisters, what's the basis of the Apostle's argument? Genesis chapter 1. He takes us back to those foundation principles that we might understand the force of his argument. So there it is. Equality. It's a foundation principle of Genesis 1 to 3. And God having established that principle in Galatians, he will then take that as an idea right through the book of the Bible and will be consistent in his dealing with men and women on that basis. But there are other principles. And those other principles, of course, need to be covered in our forthcoming studies. Now I've stopped too early, brothers and sisters. Are you able to start the tape again? So I, I quite forgot to put up my summary overhead, which I really should have done. So, so let's just read the summary then, shall we, of, of what we've discovered in this particular session. So Equality. Man and woman were given equal capacity to receive and understand divine principles and to share in the prospect of God's salvation. This equality of mind and hope is to be appreciated. And now we're going to discover in our second session how that principle will be carefully and beautifully balanced with other principles to come.